Russian Midnight Express. What's up? It's not a train. It's a prison version. It's that time again for the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki, me, Olaf Phillips. We're down here in the basement, down here at K-A-A-D-L-P-F-M, 103.5 FM out of Sonora. And uh, yeah, we're hanging out here. It's uh, burning hot down in the basement. You think it's cold, but it's not. It's really hot. Oh, you'd figure if we were... Down this low, with three stories down, that uh, it would remain a constant temperature like a cave <laughs> Yeah, but it's not. No. <laughs> no, it's really not. It's super burning hot down here. <laughs> anyway, uh, we broadcast live uh, every Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight, uh, talking about the woo. Uh, we got a good show tonight. Uh, Dave challenged me to find... A woeful story uh, that will blow his mind, and I think I have found one. It's a very rare story. Uh, very rare. Uh, yeah, mine isn't so much woo. It's just a story that's not been often told. Well, you know, mine is too. It's a very rare story. In fact, unless you read an article I wrote about it in Paranoia years ago, uh, you will probably have never heard this story. And, and with me, it's, it's not so much, it's always the, the, the cranks, the cracked pots, the uh, geniuses, the game changers. It's these personalities 
You got to think about uh, personalities, man. Yeah, and the impact that they have on their culture. Yeah. Last week I talked about John Lilly, and it wasn't so much the theories he espoused. It's just that the impact that an individual, this eccentric individual, would have on our culture. Oh, I found one and about... In an unexpected way. I found one about a very eccentric individual right. that changed, that fundamentally changed the world. But it's not what he did to change the world that makes the story. It's what he did after he changed the world that made the story. So welcome to another episode of the Enigma Hour. <laughs> yeah. I'm your co-host, Dave Allen. And I'm your co-host, uh, Olaf Phillips. And we explore life's little mysteries. You know, I like that. The life's little mysteries That's thing. That's from I, a movie. Really? Yeah. It's, I can't remember even the name of the movie, but it's like this. It's not Midnight Express? Wonder, <laughs> no, it's about this wonder kid. Okay. It's like this genius kid. But right in the middle of his uh, piano concerto that he was playing, he has an episode. Okay. And he never came back right. It's like this major breakdown. And he got schizophrenic. Oh, wow. wow. And uh, people would ask him, you know, because uh, everybody realized his genius status. But then you look over at him, and he's jumping up and down on a trampoline. Yeah. And they'd ask him questions about things. And he came up with, I think, a better one than Mr. Natural. Uh, it, he'd just look and get a smile on his face, and it just says, it's just one of life's little mysteries. <laughs> so that's where it comes from. That's huh? where it comes from. Well, well, we've been listening to a remix of The Chase, which came from Midnight Express, but <laughs> I don't know if we want to talk about that movie. Although, for our break, I did pick a song that I really like that I first heard on Miami Vice. So we'll play that later. No, I love your... Uh... The, I, I play California Dreamin', the exotica version. The exotica version. Of California Dreamin' to introduce my show on Wednesday. I oh, wow. So I appreciate it. I love that. Uh, yeah, I got I to gotta pull, pull out some more weird stuff. Tonight's is not so weird. And, and I, I want to thank you for playing um, The Journey with, by John Lilly. Oh, yeah. From the Colleen. Uh, you know, you pair that with... Um, Remember that's Fred Neal, the Fred Dolphins. Neal. Oh yes, that song, "Looking for the Dolphin in the Sea," uh, and he dedicated his life to. Uh, he started the Dolphin Project. Fred Neal. You know, I was actually uh, trying to find an Eagles song that I wanted to because it's so long. It's basically like it would be the entire break, but I couldn't find it. It's like "Flight of the Magician," uh, but I couldn't find it. Sorry. Okay. Next week. All right. Next week. No, actually, the conversation started with saying, uh, Dave, I want to challenge you. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we have these weird conversations during the break. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. we get way deep into it. We though. do. <laughs> we should probably do that actually on the air. But. All right. Do you want to flip a coin and see who goes first? <laughs> no, I'll let you go first. All right. So this is a different take on the Roswell thing. Yes. And uh, it's, not, it's not about... That's me leaning back. All right. It's not okay. about the, a cover-up of alien technology. It's a uh, cover-up of uh, Stolten technology. Okay. And so uh, I, uh, tonight we're going to meet uh, Alexander uh, Weigers. Okay. Okay. So he was born... In 1901, 
I guess it was called the Dutch West Indies. Oh, right, yeah. In Indochina, uh, Java. Java, yeah. He was born in Java. It's had many names since. Yeah. But his his parents were like colonizers. His dad had this big, huge sugarcane plantation. They had this big old hotel, looked like a big mansion. I don't want to... I don't want to derail it, but you no. know, one of the most when they redid Apocalypse Now, yeah. Apocalypse Now redo, one of the most interesting parts of it was that time when they're walk, they're going, and they come across the the French colonial plantation owners, and they're they're acting like nothing's going on. They're having like tea, and it's just it's mind bending. Well, well but, that. That's the environment I'm talking about. I guess. Well, my my dad, you know, he was in Southeast Asia. And he tells a story about going up and down through this place. He could, they called the pineapple plantation because it was a dull pineapple plantation. And he said you'd be walking through it's just pineapples, like a pineapple orchard. But yeah, that was part of that as well. Yeah, my family on my mother's side uh, worked the pineapple grows in uh, Hilo. Well, there you go. And, uh, I went to one once. Uh, no, anyway. I never, I never been. So anyway, he grew up. Uh, his uh, dad ran the plantation. His mom was a school teacher. Okay. So he is homeschooled. So his uh, mother would introduce him to, uh, you know, the great literature, and his dad apprenticed him out as a blacksmith. Well, there you go. Yeah. Later on, uh, this guy, Alexander. Well, we'll just call him Alex, and. Um, he said that blacksmithing was the mother craft of civilization. It is. It is very hard. I play around with it on occasion. I have a. I have a forge, and it is very hard. But it is oddly very fulfilling. So uh, when he gets old enough, there, these people are well off. Sure. So they send him to the finest schools in Europe. Okay. Okay. I mean, when he takes the art class. He's, he's not sitting in a lecture hall. He's, he's in the studio with, like, you know, the, the master uh, sculptor, right? Okay. Well, he graduates with a degree in mechanical engineering. <laughs> okay. Okay. So he meets a girl over there, and he brings her back to meet his parents, and they get married, and then they move to America. Okay. And they move to Seattle, Washington. And uh, he gets a job designing ships. That's what he was trained to do. He's a ship architect. He's a mechanical engineer. And uh, so they're, they're pretty happy in their life there, okay? All right. All right, all of a sudden, they're going to have their first baby. That's a big moment. Yeah, that's a big moment. Well, yeah. her, his wife, and the baby died in childbirth. Oh, man. And he, he, wow. he, like, went crazy. Yeah. I can, under, I can understand that. So he quit his job. He uh, knew the guy that was the art teacher at the university in Seattle. Okay. And uh, uh, he secured studio space. He brought in this humongous piece of granite. And he starts and, chipping away at it. And he starts it. chipping away at it. Because he's trained. And uh, he, uh, I don't know how long it took him, but the, with, uh, he worked out at 24-7. He was living in that studio. Okay? Wow. So he came out with this sculpture that's called The Morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Yep, I get and it. He, uh, he, uh, 
this thing uh, made him, uh, you can look him up, and he's a sculptor of significance, an American sculptor of significance. This sculpture took the world by storm. I mean, all his grief, all his passion. Everything. Everything was poured into this thing. It is, ele it is element elementally who he is. Yeah, and uh, it, I mean, it, it took notice worldwide. I would imagine. Well, they got all these scholarships, and he went back to Europe and uh, trained under, like, the greatest sculptures and painters and stuff of the time. Okay. Okay. Then uh, he came back, and he opened a studio in Berkeley, Berkeley, California. And uh, by this time, he has American citizenship. And uh, the war breaks out. So uh, he, uh, he knows six languages, at least six languages. Uh -huh. So he serves as an intelligence officer uh, during the war. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So uh, when he comes back, I, 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 when he finishes with his wartime, he gets a uh, job with Northrop, okay. the aerospace yeah, uh, company. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so now he wants to bring this idea that he's had for a long time, and it just really brought it to the forefront uh, because of different events that happened in his life. So, like, he's a shipbuilder, and he's out on the sea. This is, like, in the 20s or something. Okay. And he notices the dolphins are, you know, going yeah. right along with the ship right next right. to them. And he says, how can they keep that speed up? And how can they do it for so long? Right. I mean, uh, those dolphins. It's still keep... a mystery. I mean, they still. Well, what he found out was that they aren't swimming. They're surfing. They're surfing the wave that's created by the boat. Oh. And uh, so they're cruising along. It's like on their surfboards, the endless wave. Wow. Okay. So then uh, um, I think he actually saw someone killed with a helicopter. But the war really brought it home to him because he says these helicopters, you know, the advantage is, is they take off and land vertically, right? Right. So you use it to bring in troops and supplies yeah. and things like that. Sure. But the problem with it is, is it flies too slow and too low. Right. That they're easy targets. Very easy targets. And he says they drop like bricks. Is what Especially if you have a stinger or a man pad, it's, it's game over. Right. So during the war, the Japanese came in to Java, confiscated the plantation, okay. and put his parents, his family, in a concentration camp. And then he's thinking, man, if we could find a way to get these, uh, like some kind of vehicle in there, some kind of aircraft to evacuate. Right, that makes sense. In times of war and stuff. Sure. And so uh, he comes with it up with an idea that has the uh, capability like a he helicopter to go up and down. Okay. But this thing can uh, land on water or on land. Um, it can um, uh, hover like, uh, and it can go way up high and at incredible speeds. So, so just think a helicopter uh, capabilities that can go as fast as a jet. Okay. okay. Kind of like what they were trying to do with an Osprey. And uh, sort of. So, so he, totally. 
So I think what happened uh, with, with Northrop is that he, um, he had his own, you know, he was used to going into a place and they give him studio space and right. then he'd sit there and invent. And that's not the way it is over there. No. And he was a real peacenik. Yeah. I mean, he... Uh, <laughs> Working at Northrop Grumman, he's a yeah, peacenik? Well, see, that's just it. That's he a wanted, bad choice. That's it. I think yeah. that's what it was, is that he had, was an idealistic dude that had these visions of uh, the future of aviation. Yeah, no. And uh, they they weren't. It had to have practical military significance, or else they wouldn't let where, you do the project. For Northrop Grumman, that's where the money is. Okay, so he quits. I'm not surprised. Well, okay. <laughs> so he starts sending around uh, these. So he gets this patent for this invention that he has. Okay. That's in 1944. So he starts sending to every air air. Airline company, Ford Motor Company, the military, everybody. Okay. This design for this thing that he called the disc copter. I know where you're going with this. Uh, okay. So everybody, like most of these people, just sent the package back unopened. They wouldn't even open it. One sure. company opened it and said... Uh, Probably it's insane. Uh, yeah, or he says it's too far advanced or... You know, and uh, the military said, well, we're, we're kind of interested, but we're still dealing with this war stuff. So, no, not now. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but they never sent back the package. I'm not surprised. Uh, I mean, okay. remember, you know, when Tesla, Nikola Tesla died, they raided his, his workspace and stole all of his designs. They all just vanished. Yeah, they, what was it, like 38 cases unaccounted for? Oh, yeah, something crazy. Yeah. Plus the devices themselves, the energy cannon and all that stuff. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Okay, so uh, I mean, he even adapts his. Uh, there's this beautiful because he was he was an artist. I guess he was the one that combined art and science together. As a matter of fact, when he did his first um, art exhibit that he had with his sculptures and his paintings and drawings. Um, the San Francisco Chronicles is like 1938 or something. I declared him the new Da Vinci. Really? Yeah. Wow. And, uh, <laughs> That's impressive. Yeah. So yeah, and then even in the in the article it says, uh, you know that we just don't do idle talk. It prefaced it. By <laughs> it says, but this guy. This is the main event. This is the man, right? Right. So there's this beautiful drawing. So he's envisioning purposes for this disc copter. Okay. And the original one was to either bring in supplies to uh, or evacuate war zones people. or evacuate people, natural disasters, things like that, right? Right. All right. But now nobody's biting at all, nothing. Yeah. So uh, uh, there's this drawing that he made, and it's like uh, San Francisco. Okay. But it has this terminal there okay it's okay. like a helioport or something right and he has these disc copters that look like cruise ships you know? they're all lined up and then he has the um like ones that are about the size of buses okay it would be about a bus and then he had uh, had one that was like little individual cars you know and so th this was drawn in the 40s and uh it looks like you know futuristic sure uh it's just really Grand stuff. Okay? Oh wow! 
It uh, sounds. I mean, it sounds cool. Yeah, but he couldn't sell it to anybody. Which is funny. Well, I mean, it's years later, but there's a there was a company, Avro, that that built something like that. Yeah, they're a Canadian outfit. Yeah, and the Avro I, car. And I think, um, well, there's an association there with uh, where our government works with a private Canadian company. Right. And uh, so it might be like a later design or something. I'm wondering because you said it, you said he sent it to the government and it vanished. Well, no, they said that. Uh, his, well, they they were interested, but, but uh, they never sent it back. Yeah, I and, mean, Avro just kind of came out of nowhere. You know, the, there is a school of thought that that the Avro stuff was ba- based on German designs of like Vortex engines and you know a lot of stuff that came out of the the Wunderwaffen. Well, my argument is it came from this eccentric uh, sculptor, uh, shipbuilder guy. Okay. All right. And uh, so he's despondent, you know. Wow, like, nobody's yeah. buying his ideas. Sure. Then all of a sudden in 1947, <laughs> Kenneth Arnold uh, <laughs> saw four, uh, no, it was nine vehicles, Nine right? vehicles nine, by Bernier. All in a line. And he says they were shaped like saucers, and they bobbed as they flew. They skipped, they skipped through the air as though they were skipping across water. Yeah, and uh, uh, his uh, Weig, uh, Weiger's original idea was the dolphin right. creating a wave and riding your and own riding wave. And riding a wave. Yeah, and uh, so it was a perfect description. Mm-hmm. So he knew right away that uh, although he held the patent for it. Well. <laughs> um, uh, so then how long, uh, how many months later did Roswell happen? Oh, I think it was less than six months. Okay. And then the flying saucer craze was off. Yeah. I mean, it just took off. It did. I mean, there was this big wave, the flap, they call it. I mean, yeah. Flying saucers were everywhere. Oh, yeah, and everybody's look, meeting aliens. And, and uh, they're having uh, yeah, amazing stories, the cover, the sure. flying saucer. Well, uh, Jetsons uh, is an exact a cartoon copy of uh, Alex's uh, drawing of San Francisco of the Future with his disc optics. You know, it's, it's interesting because, you know, typically when it comes to Roswell, you know, they're really kind of two primary schools of thought. And one is that it was a alien vehicle that crashed. And, <clears throat> you know, this goes back to, you know, them finding the, the I-beam that had the weird in, inscriptions in it. And, and, you know, Jesse Marcel's statements about a flying saucer crashing and, you know, whatever. But there's also a second theory that, predominant theory that it was a German disc and they one of the names that they called it was a Hanabu but there there is a pervasive theory that it, it was actually a German uh, UFO that crashed so I guess now there's a third theory well yeah but I, I have the receipts I have photographs declassified from the Air Force so really? yeah of them making these things and flying these things and it says right on it, uh, Air Force Army. It was a cooperative effort. Yeah. And uh, they uh, contracted with a Canadian outfit to Avro. make the parts. Yeah, Avro. And uh, they constructed Or AV Row or... Yeah, whatever. no, I know what you're talking about. Yeah. It's the flying car technology. Yeah, the Avro, Avro car. Right. 
Uh, and this in the Avro car is basically what this guy designed. Yeah, except for uh, well, he had he adapted it for several purposes. I sure, mean, but I mean the the basic design of it. Right. And uh, interesting. Yeah, and uh, so uh, he tries suing, and uh, nobody's going to take this case. I mean, uh, the no. military, the government's uh, that plausible deniability. Sure. I mean, this whole thing, no, they're, they're UFOs. So we don't know anything about it. It was a weather balloon. Right, it was a, yeah. Instead of a test vehicle that we stole the technology from and you know, And you know, the plane, they load the debris onto the plane and then they take off. I think it's a B-17. Oh yeah, and then the plane crashes. The plane crashes with the two intelligence guys on board. Yeah. Yeah, as, as Stanton Friedman used to call it, it's a cosmic water gate. The late great Stanton Friedman, he made his entire career on Roswell. The Cosmic Watergate. Yeah, well, uh, he became... But yeah, he even tried suing a cartoon company. You know, so, you know what's... Hold on. What's interesting about this, though, is that now it kind of redeems Stanton Friedman's Cosmic Watergate because if what you're saying is true, then the design was stolen to begin with, just right. like Watergate. So, so the design maybe he knew was something. stolen. Yeah. And, um, well, yeah, this guy, uh, Alexander uh, Weiger's... There was a big article in Time magazine. Yeah. You know, and all uh, the Chronicle did articles on them. Carmel paper did. But I have a, a scan of a newspaper, and um, it says, is, is this guy's invention the UFO craze? Because they had already interviewed him. He did things. Okay, now this is where his life went. Okay. Okay, so he became disgusted with everything. He thought sure. we lived in a wasteful, consumer-based society. Sounds like Ted Kaczynski. And the, uh, uh, the whole uh, military-industrial complex was sure. perverted and stuff. So he dropped out. I mean, dropped out. So when he was in the, uh, the war, he had a buddy, an army buddy, and, he, and his buddy got killed in the war. Okay. Well, his buddy bequeathed to him a, um, some acres of land out in Car Carmel Valley. Okay. And back then, Carmel Valley was nothing. Right. But it is curious, the Central Coast, mm. um, I mean, all the writers and artists oh, that yeah. came out of there, it's just like amazing. It's crazy. Yeah. And so there's something about that place. Okay. There is. So I would uh, agree with you about that. So when he had his studio in Berkeley, he met another girl and married her. Her name was Marion. Okay. So her and Marion, uh, him and Marion take off to uh, this land in Carmel Valley. Well, back then, there was nothing. Yeah, it's undeveloped. Uh, yeah, totally undeveloped. Uh, she says that they're sleeping in tents, in a tent. Okay. And she says, but it's kind of like Adam and Eve, you know? <laughs> and so she's into it. She was an artist, too. Okay. Met her in, Art, art student at UC Berkeley or something like that. Okay. And, uh, but that wasn't for long because he's a shipbuilder, right? Right. I mean, he's a, 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 a designs aircraft. Uh, UFOs. Yeah, UFOs. So he's going to design a house. And everything that he builds that house with is found. <laughs> it's recycled. Oh, wow. There's nothing that he bought in the so store. So it's, it's like an earth ship. Ah, uh, it is. Yeah. As a matter of fact, this is later on, kind of the part of the story I'm getting to. 
uh, he became a big counterculture icon for the Back to the Earth movement. Okay. And everybody said, hey, let's go. There's this guy that lives in a tree house, and he'll teach you how to make tools. Because he's a blacksmith. And, uh, oh, yeah, he wrote this thing called The Modern Blacksmith. And if you know anybody that does any blacksmith. Yeah, no, I haven't. You have that? I believe I do, yeah. Yeah, well, look at, yeah, still the standard yeah. Bible of blacksmithing. I, I never bothered to look who wrote it, but yeah. Okay, that's him. Wow. All right, so, I mean, he's got creds, you know. <laughs> he has a lot of cred. <laughs> so, yeah, he drops out of society completely. He lives without money. He never had to pay income tax because he never made enough money. So he grew his own food. He built his own house. He builds his own tools. Um, That's crazy. When the kids started coming in the 60s, right? Yeah. They wanted to get back to nature, back to earth, the whole earth catalog people, right? Right. right. They all came to him. Uh, he set up these week-long workshops, thousands of back, the back to earth movement kids came through there for a week on how to make their own tools and live Off with everything line. recycled. And, uh, and back then there was no, uh, well, I don't know, my mom recycled and, and that was in uh, really early 60s, but my mom was pretty progressive. Yeah, we didn't, and, in, the, uh, in the 80s we did Yeah, there was only one place that you could recycle at was in Oakland and uh, had to fill up a pickup truck through all the, but I, it was kind of cool because we'd wash out the cans and I'd open both ends and smash them, take the labels on and stuff. And then when those filled up in the garbage cans, take it. and she also used organic soaps. That was kind of weird too. So. I'm still hung up on the recycling in the 60s. <laughs> yeah. Well, this guy, he's like the father of all that. And he taught a whole generation of the back to the earth people. In his house, you wouldn't believe what his house looked like. Yeah. I mean, it was like the top of it looked like the bottom of a ship, the hull of a ship turned upside down. Well, sure, and he, and he would he be did, used to that. He didn't cut down the trees. He did like build among the trees. So yeah, he I've had seen like that. he has has like these limbs. When you go into the door, it's all leafy up above. Yeah. So I think that's why everybody said it's a tree house. But this, this. Had I seen pictures of it? It's, it's got uh, a sink, running water. I mean, uh, I, th I, th I didn't show a picture of the toilet, but I think it had a flush toilet. It had a stove. It looked like a wood stove. Sure. But it was a nice house. And then he had his studio, his blacksmith shop. And uh, I, I read and listened to interviews of some of the people. Uh, that went through uh, his workshops during that time in the 1960s. You know, he would never sell his artwork. He never, he, he hated the gallery. He just hated this capitalist consumer society thing. He really did check out. And uh, he did. He yeah. totally was like one of the first to just go off the grid and but managed to do it and thrive. Now he did, because I, I know he made a couple postage stamps, so he had to get paid for that. But he lived on a minimum. Uh, he would always barter yeah. for everything, for mostly recycle. But see, that's when Cannery Row was shutting down. The canneries were shutting down. Mm -hmm. So that was a gold mine for him. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah, to, to build his own house and stuff. So uh, he dies at 87 years old. Okay. 
And his wife, she lived for several more years. She became kind of, you know, because they were like the first environmentalists and activists. Right. You know, and uh, that's what she, and she was an artist too. This guy could do everything. Oh, so he wants to take up photography. Okay. He, he builds his own camera. Well, he even grinds his own lenses. He ground his own lenses. That's right. Really? Yeah. And he became a, a photographer of, of renown. Then he wanted to experiment with film. But um, it, he didn't make movies. He made like these art pieces. And we're talking the early 60s, right? And uh, what he did, you know, the liquid light shows? Oh, yeah, like they used to do back in the 60s for right. the Jefferson Airplane. Yeah, yeah, that's what they were. They were the prototype. Because yeah, uh, those guys are hella famous. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, this is uh, kind of like the guy that first developed it. Yeah, those short films could be shown during a Grateful Dead or Jefferson Airplane concert. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think for some of the Jefferson Airplane ones and the bigger bands like Hendrix and others, they would actually do it live. Oh, yeah. The, no, um, I grew up um, in my neighborhood, and they became the house light show for the Fillmore, and it was Little Princess 109. They'd have all these projectors and film loops, right. uh, but they did it all live, and the main thing was uh, they used clock faces, old-fashioned clock faces, yeah. to do the oil and dyes yeah. and then smash them together. And so uh, this guy uh, made films of that. He developed. What did he not do? Uh, There was nothing that, I mean, this guy was the uh, um, uh, polymath. He was the Renaissance man. He, uh, I mean, he built the house and then constructed his own nails. (laughs) He forged his own nails. He forged his own nails. Not that hard to do. Well, yeah, I know, but I mean, he made all the hasps. And stuff. Oh, and there was this guy I seen uh, uh, like a YouTube of this guy that lived like next door, uh-huh. so, and he was just a little kid. And he'd always come and uh, just sit and watch the guy. He did sculpting, and he did it in all meetings, but he did like this wood sculpting and stuff. And and he never sold this work. He never he'd give some of it away, family and friends, or some at the Smithsonian. Traded. He, he, he wouldn't. Uh, uh, exhibit at a gallery. Well, he would exhibit. He had some real famous exhibits, but no, nothing was for sale. Okay, so it wasn't like a gallery owner going to So he just it. traded for it, or? Uh, yeah, he would trade. Barter. Barter. Um, yeah, he never had to pay income tax. He was kind of no, the no income tax man. That's pretty <laughs> amazing. So. And, and so he's he's where you think the original design for the for the uh, the yeah all evidence points to that Evercar um, the uh, he called it the discopter and when uh, it crashed in Roswell it was just an experimental flight right um, they did have a problem stabilizing that yeah plane. no if you watch at least for the for the Evercar if you watch it it's unstable. Yeah, and that was a that was a dumbed down design. <clears throat> well, it's uh, probably the best they could do because they're ripping it off. And and restrictions, they kept modifying the plans to dumb it down. And I'm not all hep on uh, you know mechanical engineering or yeah, anything like that. 
but uh, I seen they went through different um, uh, incarnations of them. Each one, it looked a little simpler, a little simpler. Well, yeah, and that's that's and then, always the objective. And uh, they, yeah, they had a hard time getting it off the ground. Yeah, I mean the films of the Avrocar, you know, it's it's very wobbly. Yeah, they try to gyroscope and yeah. Well, there's that's actually supposedly <clears throat> during the the reason that one of the theories about Roswell, the pervasive theories, is it was a German aircraft, is because supposedly <clears throat> in the wreckage they found a it's this like weird compass. And it's actually, it's a slave compass, meaning that it connects to a, a larger magnetic compass. But what it does is that when you sight it, you have to sight it actually celestially, like you align it celestially. And then you can use it when the, when the magnetic compass, like you go to the pole. If you ever go to the, the North or South Pole. The no, not lately. Right, but if you ever do, I know it's top of your list. But the compass will spin. It'll just... Especially when you enter hollow earth. <clears throat> the portal of hollow earth. Hey, you know, I heard a story about that once. Sure. So I knew I knew this guy. I knew this guy. Actually, it's unfortunate because he lives in Yellowknife. <laughs> I knew this guy. Well, I mean, when you do that kind of stuff, you know, when you, you do 14 stuff, you tend to know a guy. And he uh, he heard from a buddy of his... It was in Canadian Special Forces that they were they were doing Arctic warfare training, and they actually knew like spate like spots where they were they were in like depressions, deep like depression. Right, they do. They have them. Yeah, and and inside yeah, the Admiral Bird actually threw, flew in the one, right? Yeah. Well, that's a whole nother story. But, but they were trying you know. to establish a base, and they and, yeah. and they said they were going to do training exercises. That's one theory, yeah. Well, that was the official. That's word. the official theory, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. Admiral Admiral Byrd took a massive, I mean, a massive fleet down to down to Antarctica, and he went down there <clears throat> supposedly to establish a base and to do testing of uh, military equipment under extremely cold environments, because one of the things that they prophesized was that if we ever fought the Soviets at the time, that a lot of it, you know, there's obviously the fight that would happen in Europe. How does it have military value and, yes. and strategic You'd go over the pole. You'd go over the shortest distance to Russia, or to the Soviets, was over the pole. And so, yeah, but he, I forget how long he was there. Oh, they cut it short. Yeah, it was like it was seven like, days or something. No, it was longer than that. They were supposed to be there like for months. Months, yeah, no, and months and months. They were there about a month, and then packed everything. In in a, in a hurry. In a hurry. In a massive right. hurry. So, good. Well, no, I was just uh, if you want to introduce now the conspiracy or the sure. mystery comes in. He said nothing at the time. He was debriefed. There was nothing happening. Oh, bird? Yeah. Yeah. And then nothing happened. He died. Right. And then his son found the diary, his personal diary. Yes. And that's where the. That's where it gets weird. Yeah. And there, there are two pervasive schools of thought about the whole Operation High Jump thing. One is that he was looking for one of the entrances to Hyperborea, the inner earth. And there's one at the South Pole, one at the North Pole. 
and he thought that he had found the entrance in the South Pole. And the other is that he went down there to fight Nazis. The, the Germans, well, the Nazis, we should be specific. As the, as the war was ending, that the Nazis built a base in Antarctica called Base 211. And they, there's some weird evidence to well, support they, they were They were in cahoots with the aliens to uh, help <laughs> well, them develop technology so they can take, uh, turn the tide of the war. Right? There's actually, okay, hold on. <clears throat> okay, so this is where it gets a little weird. And, and this goes back to, I know you really like stuff about Tuolumne County, right? So there's actually. Why are you going to tie Tuolumne County? <clears throat> I can tie Tuolumne that? County to this. Okay, so remember before we talked about about the the Sonora Aero Club, right? So there was an opposing group that was called NIMSA, <clears throat> and, and a lot of people think that NIMSA meant, I think it was the New York Motor Zephyr Association, but. Um, Many interpreters. Yeah, but Walter Bosley actually found a German translation for NIMSA. And it was some sort of a military translation. And the and NIMSA was run by Prussians. Yeah, the war goose. Yes. And so they were Prussians. Okay, so during World War II, there was a guy named Hans Kamler. Mm-hmm. And Kamler, Kamler was a very bad person. You know, he, oh, how do I explain it? <clears throat> he, he was a civil engineer by training and he actually designed the con- parts of the concentration camp system. Not a good person. And he was a general in the SS. And eventually he became in charge. He, he took over uh, Penamunda and the advanced weapons programs for the Nazis that Himmler himself ordered it. And they basically, they took it away from Goering. And what's interesting about Goering is that Goering was German, but Goering was obsessed with Prussia. Goering was actually the Reich's protector of Prussia. Well, anyway, so Kamler was Prussian. And so he's working on these advanced weapons programs. And one of them is he, they had a, a huge research and development facility as well as a factory in the Skoda munitions works in uh, the Hartz Mountains, right? And I think it's in now in Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic, sorry. I'm, I was born in the 70s, you know, <laughs> different time. I was actually born in West Germany. I was born in a country that doesn't exist. Oh, okay. <clears throat> anyway, so Kamler works on this thing that's called Der Glocke, the bell. Now, what's interesting about the bell is that, again, Bos- Walter Bosley, you know, in his Empire of the Wheel, um, he talks about it. He found a power source in some of the arrows that no, were... In, in one of his notebooks, yeah. uh, Deschau's notebooks, Deschau's, there is a, a picture, picture of the bell. Uh, it's in a shed. They have this, like, hidden shed that they're our uh, hanger, I guess, homemade right. hanger. Right. But they're trying out these different technologies. Right, and one of them is the bell. And it's it's totally the bell. It's shaped just like that, and that thing is vibrating. They yeah, and they like actually... Like a little cartoon has, Yeah, and he has arrows actually showing the counter-rotating mechanism yeah. on the bell. Yeah, so... And Bosley actually found one in one of the arrows. 
that they had actually implemented. Now, what's interesting is that, so the Bell becomes the power source for these exotic vehicles, one of which they called the, um, the Haunabu, which was supposedly a Nazi UFO. After the war, at the end of the war, Kamler, who is Prussian, Kamler dies something like six times. Nobody can figure out where he went. So the story goes is that he got these Junkers 380s, or no, the 380s or 580s. Well, it, it's a large, they call it the America bomber. And there's like five in all of Nazi Germany. There's like five. He's got like four. And if you refueled it in North Africa, it had the range to actually get with one hop, one refueling, it could actually get to Antarctica. And so supposedly, Kamler doesn't die. Kamler moves the Haunabu, the Bell, and all the advanced technology that they were, they had synthetic blood, synthetic fuels, all kinds of crazy stuff, which is documented and it's true. The Haunabu you can argue about, but the synthetic blood and fuels and other things, that's real. Well, supposedly they moved all that to base 211 and Bird went down there to kill him. Well, what's interesting is that you've got Kamler who's working on the bell. The bell shows up in Deschau's work of the NIMSA and the Sonora Aero Club. I think it's actually one of the NIMSA arrows. Um, but I just remember seeing uh, pictures. See, you yeah. can't see his notebooks all together anymore. No. But you can uh, get a good idea because the plates are available in places. Yeah. And uh, there are. is a plate that shows uh, a bell. the bell. Well, what's interesting is that after the war, when they're they're going through the denazification process, and they're also interrogating these these guys who were part of these advanced programs, many of whom came here, right? Like Werner von Braun as part of Operation Paperclip, and some of those guys worked on the AV Row, the Avrocar. Well, one of the things that they found out is that they were asking about Kamler because nobody can find him, and everybody wants Kamler. He's a very bad guy, but he's an engineer and he knows and has the technology. The technology. So they want him because, you know, they believe that they're going to fight the Soviets and they want to win. Well, during the interviews with uh, <clears throat> during the interviews with these guys, one in particular, he was a I think he was a general officer as well. His name his name escapes me. But he said that Kamler, although Kamler was an ardent Nazi, very loyal to the Nazi, you know, ideology, he always believed that Kamler was beholden to someone else, that he was never truly loyal to the Third Reich, that he was loyal to someone else. Mr. Big. Nimza. So uh, I could just picture this guy. He's alive today, and he keeps himself uh, alive with <laughs> well, synthetic blood, but he's slowly kind of rotting away. Yeah. He only has half a face and some mechanicals uh, that he uses for sure. steampunk. And he's living in the Arctic. With he's the living aliens. at base 211. Right. Yeah. But, but yeah, so, so that's the connection is that Kamler was, some, I think, Kamler was part of NIMSA. And then NIMSA, I believe that NIMSA still exists today. Now, the Sonora Aero Club does not. I mean, we're here in Sonora. There's no arrows flying around. Although there's a lot of UFOs, there's no arrows. But I do believe that NIMSA exists today, and they kept adapting the technology through the bell. And this goes back to Kecksburg and the Kecksburg thing, 
which looks exactly like the bell. But that's that's the connection of base 211 of Tuolumne County is the bell. So, uh, yeah, but what the Shao developed was technology mass reduction device. Um, well, the bell, the bell is theoretically capable of all kinds of weird yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah, I know. I've seen uh, the time there, travel. And, oh, all kinds of things. Yeah. They... But that, that all comes from a guy named Jacob Spornberg, who was an SS officer, and he, he at the time, he cho- told the Czechoslovakians they were going to execute him. And he's like, well, let me tell you a story if it'll keep me alive. And so he tells him a story about Kamler, the bell, um, the hinge where they supposedly tethered the bell, you know, all this crazy. See, he had and read, then they executed him. The, he, uh, he had read 1001 Arabian Nights. <laughs> And uh, he thought he could keep himself alive one more night. Or who is it? The story of Esther. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Where, uh, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story that never ends. Right. And then. Uh, or Sarah Winchester, let me keep building my house. Oh, yeah. So keep the spirits at bay. Keep the spirits at bay. What's interesting, though, is that, that many years ago, I, I talked to a guy named Dr. Richard Allen Miller. And Richard Allen Miller was a, what he, he was a polymath. And what he said is that he, he was a, a troubleshooter for the Navy, that he was basically Jim Shannon, the, the new, was it the new earth? Well, it was the Green Berets they trained with like psychic phenomenon. He did the same thing for the SEALs. And he said that he had personally been to base 211. And it was all shot to hell, that there was some kind of a big war. But yeah, supposedly Bird goes down there to fight them and he loses. And then he runs. That's yeah. some woo, man. Yeah, that is. That's some heavy woo. But there's there's also, you know, Hyperborea that he was looking for the inner earth so, and Schaefer. So uh, mine not is, is not so spectacular. But what happens is, uh, to me, Alexander uh, Weigers, um, he influenced a whole generation of these black, back-to-the-earth people. He died when he was 87 years old. Okay. Now he never sold his work, so he's just got all his work still there, right? Well, no. I mean, this is so it finally comes up for auction. Okay. And uh, this guy, uh, Randy McNichols, he's like this hotshot Carmel um, gallery owner, you know? Right. You know, he buys the lot. Oh wow. He buys everything, and he becomes so obsessed <clears throat> with, with this artist. He he thinks he. He's going to discover this uh, and make famous this uh, brilliant artist, right? Right. <clears throat> and he gets so obsessed with it. I mean, he finds the guy's glasses. Uh, he finds uh, the letters that he wrote to the different companies for, with the proposals. Oh, wow. Uh, he found all. The house uh, disappeared. So um, he it got tore it? down. Uh, um or rotted away or something, because it took several years for his estate to finally come up for auction. Right. And by that time, the, the house was gone. Okay. Okay. So um, so this guy, Randy McNichol, he's going to rebuild the guy's house. He's going to set up the uh, Weigers Foundation. Okay. All right. And, he's pretty uh, excited. Yeah, he's really excited. And he's pushing the guy off as like, the original maker, yeah, you know, like I, the no, maker I get that. lab yeah. things, you know. For sure. And uh, but a brilliant sculptor, and uh, you should see his work. It is just no. Amazing. I'm going to check it out. Um, 
And uh, but he uh, so he starts supposedly starts this foundation. Uh-huh. I mean, you you can find there is a website for this foundation. Okay. Okay. But the last entry to it was 2017. Okay. Okay. So that's when this guy died of cancer in 2017. And so I'm down in Carmel Valley. And I'm doing a, uh, we're filming a documentary about this famous playwright that's living in Carmel Valley. This car, the Central Coast is just oh, yeah. this amazing mystical place. It is. And so I'm going to go find this guy's house. I'm going to find uh, the Weigers Foundation. I'm going to find. You're going to uh, find it. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find uh uh, something his uh, something in a gallery or something something somewhere right and you want to know what I, so i had started with two addresses okay okay so i finally find one i i you know i kept driving back and forth I, and, and it ended up being right across it's really funny because i went everywhere looking for this address and they don't mark these addresses too no good. not a in lot Carmel. of them are kind of like these estates well they're also house names and yeah. right i mean it's like kind of crazy you yeah know? it's like the red house okay well, well, come to find out one of the addresses is exactly across the street from the hotel that i'm staying in oh that's hilarious okay so uh all there is is like this embankment with a little trail and it's all kind of hidden away so in my fantasy uh-huh. you know it's like it's like the secret <laughs> garden or something you know <laughs> i'm gonna go down this little path and, and it's all gonna be there Dave. things are happening <laughs> no because the guy proposed he was going to rebuild the house sure. and set up this big museum and foundation. He, didn't. he didn't do he any died yeah he died um and, but you i seen a tour of the of the guy's collection that he had collected so where's the collection I, that's it it's where gone. is it where is that collection? Where is um, the foundation? Was that foundation not sturdy enough that just because the founder well, apparently died? apparently not. Yeah, it was just a website. Yeah. Okay, and then there was another address, and that didn't exist either. It was an empty, it wasn't an empty field. What it was is at one time, Carmel Valley had an airport. Right. And I said, oh, man, check this out, the connection, the address, because I'm Googling, doing yeah, Mother yeah. Earth and all that stuff or the... Google Earth, and sure. I'm pin, trying to pinpoint this stuff because yeah, I'm yeah. there. Yeah, you're and going. I, I want to find this. I knew sure. about this guy. <clears throat> and so uh, we go to where it, this is supposed to be, uh-huh. and it was the former airport for Carmel Valley, but they closed it down. It became right. like a truck farm. It's <laughs> like, you know, it's like uh, the uh, nursery. Okay. You know, so I'm talking to this guy. And I said, where is this place? He had never heard of the artist. He had never heard of the foundation. And he goes, uh, besides the layout of the place, it looked like a landing strip. But he told me this was the old airport. And immediately I thought connections, airport. Yeah, that makes sense. But uh, uh, Weiger's never built one of the disc copters. He made a tense by getting the job at Northrop that he could you know, use uh, their extra hanger sure. on the side in his off hours. But when he realized that wasn't going to happen, he had to find yeah. uh, patrons right. uh, to get this built. So he was writing all the proposals and stuff. Yeah, so what happened to all that stuff? Now, you can go online and buy prints 
right. of uh, some of his work, and some of his most popular work is those disc copters, yeah, uh, because they look so retro futuristic. Sure, uh, but, but everything else is gone. Yeah, that I well, I don't know. I mean, somebody listening to the show may say, "Hey, man, hey, Dave, I, I it's in my garage." <laughs> But uh, I actually went down there looking for some evidence. And you couldn't of this find guy. anything. And all I found was uh, a little trail that led down to a creek. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, with that being said, I think it's time for us to take a break. All right. You're listening to the Enigma Hour with Captain Tiki and Dave. That'd be me, Olaf Phillips, and Dave. We're co hosts of each other. And uh, we're live on KADLP 103.5 FM here in Sonora. Yep, nothing's re rehearsed. No.
Les passagers du vol Royal Air Maroc Air France 7473 à destination de Marrakech sont à retard sur le monde dans les
Oh 
All right. Chilling to uh, some Brian Eno there. So you're welcome back to the uh, Enigma Hour number two. Yeah, uh, didn't they used to, uh, he experimented with uh, music for the airports? Yeah, he wrote a soundtrack for airports. I'm, I'm telling you, uh, I almost heard the uh, sounds of the propellers. <laughs> yeah, during that song. That's true. You know, before you begin your story, I think we sh- uh, the Bigfoot uh, Music and Art yes. Festival is next week. Next week. And so uh, 24 bands, 50 vendors. Uh, there's going to be uh, fire dancers, oh, wow. belly dancers, hula hoopers, face painting for the kitties, yoga, sunrise yoga. Sunrise yoga. I yes. won't be there. Three days of fun. <laughs> oh, you'll miss uh, Cody Starr from Good Morning Sacramento. I am not going to be there at 6.30. I actually, I work at 6.30 in the morning. <laughs> but they're going to have it all. And... On Sunday, they're going to have the Bigfoot Symposium. Yes, and you and I will be there yes. manning the KAADLP 103.5 FM Sonora, California booth. Yeah, but not during the symposium. We're going to no. be at the symposium. We're going to be at the but symposium. But we are planning on handing out a little big, Bigfoot sticker to everybody that attends. Yeah, and come by. You know what? We're going to have a prize wheel. A prize wheel. With right. Bigfoot-related prizes. And we have t- pens. Pens. Get a free pen. <laughs> They're crappy, cheap pens, <laughs> but, it's just, but get one. Yeah, They're it's, free. It's the uh, tarot wheel. You know? <laughs> uh, it's yes, it's a, the tarot wheel. <laughs> the wheel of fortune. Yes, don't don't get the tower. <laughs> okay. But uh, I'll tell you who's going to be at the Bigfoot Symposium. It's Lay it curious on that three of the uh, uh, na- more nationally known researchers. Right. Uh, live in Jamestown. I know, that's I, crazy. I think that's not a mistake. No. So it's going to be hosted by Jerry Hine. Oh, wow. And he's the man that um, actually chronicles. If you uh, if you have a Bigfoot site, you're supposed to go to him. He's the official recorder. <laughs> you official. know, this is the 10th anniversary Quote, unquote, of official. the uh, uh, Rim Fire. Oh, yeah, it and is. And when they had the Rim Fire, there right. was, like, I don't know if you call them a flap, a wave. I Bigfoot did not know. sightings because they were all displaced. They were coming into everybody's backyard. I bet. And uh, then they're going to have the strains. Now, Kathy Strain, she literally wrote the book. Uh, she is um, an anthropologist uh, for the Stanislaus National Forest. There you and go. And I think it was for a master thesis or something. She um, wrote a book about the persistence of the Bigfoot legend throughout all the native tribes in North America. I need to get that book. Yeah. I think it's out of print, but you probably still get a copy. I can find it. Yeah. And um, I have a on, large I have a large every t- You see, now I can't name you the names of the shows because I don't know them, but... It's, okay. um, it's hard to keep up. Yeah, but she's been on every one of those. Uh, uh, Kathy uh, Strain. And then Bob Strain, um, hey, uh, he's old timer. Um, you know, there's a lot of like prospectors, old time prospectors oh, yeah. up here. For sure. Well, he's the old time Bigfoot researcher. Oh, <laughs> I can't here. wait. I'm so excited. So, I mean, he does have that look like a miner or something, you know? Well, I but, will I will be wearing my big my Bigfoot tiki shirt. So that you'll be able to find it. Okay, me. that's worth that's worth the price of admission. Although the Bigfoot Symposium's free. I can't wait. 
And uh, I will so, not be manning the so, table. So uh, Kathy and Bob both belong to this thing called the Wood Ape Conservancy. Okay. So the preferred term now is the North American Wood Ape. Yeah, no, I'm going to call them Sasquatch or Bigfoot. That's just well, that's yeah, how I roll. In the Miwok, it's the Yaya Lee. Yeah, it's the Yaya Lee. Yeah, so... Um, yeah, actually, I... I, I'm getting another a story about the Yaya Lee and Coyote. It's coming. Wow. I'll tell you when I, I know that. more. Yeah. Uh, I, I got a couple with a Squirrel and the Yaya Lee. That was a popular one back in the day. <laughs> We're going to have to talk some more. <laughs> All right. Oh, maybe that's another show. <laughs> um, but they, uh, we got to get them on. Uh, I, they have been on my Friday afternoon traffic jam. No, we need they, them on this. No, you're, it would be perfect. So it would we'll, be absolutely we'll perfect. you schmooze on Sunday. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be schmoozing up a storm and, uh, with free pens. Yeah, Bob and Jerry's been down here talking. Uh, I'm going to tell them, hey, come down here to the, to the Enigma Hour and get a free pen. Yeah. I should offer that. You know what? If, if, if somebody wants to come down and be interviewed, they get a free pen. All right. You don't get a free pen. I'm a pencil guy. Yeah, you got a lot of pencils. Uh, KAD pencils. We got a KAD That's pencil right That's our first merch <laughs> that, that we ever uh, Oh, wait a minute. Created. There's two pencils. Uh, well, we can't give them. <laughs> no, email me, Olav no, we, at we'll anomalies.net. Want to come down here and get interviewed? Get a free pen. Yeah, well, we'll have the little K, uh, Bigfoot KAD. We're going to have Bigfoot stickers. stickers yeah. We're going to have uh, tree, uh, tree cookies. Yeah. With Bigfoot just on them. Just say hi to us. Don't come down to see us. And no, don't come down to see us. Come just to the Bigfoot Festival. Come to the Bigfoot Festival and find us on Sunday. 24 uh, bands, three days, uh, Bigfoot Symposium. Twain Hard, California. on Sunday. Um, I think so. And uh, you'll meet all you the You know big, what? I'm going to play the promo. I got Bigfoot promo 23. I'm well, gonna... he didn't say any more than I did. I helped oh. him make that. <laughs> okay. And the problem was, is there was so much to say. Oh, go to Eventbrite. Oh, there you go. To get your tickets. Yes. And, and hot off the presses. I know we're, we're in Bigfoot zone right now. October, NIMZACON. Right. Coming to Sonora in October, NIMZACON. Right. Okay. With Walter wait. Bosley, me... Uh, Joseph Farrell, you know who he is. And, uh, He's a wild guy, right? He is. And uh, Alan Greenfield. Uh, yeah. Wow. Assembly of the weird, huh? Yeah, and actually, uh, Walter, on the Sunday, the NIMSACON's going to be on Saturday. I just need to make sure I book the thing tomorrow, but NIMSACON's going to be on Saturday. Now, what's the date on that? Are you, you Well, I don't sure want to do it yet until I book the okay. book the thing tomorrow. Um but he's going to do a tour. He's going to do a Sonora Aero Club tour oh my God. This is on Sunday. Dovetail. Okay, so just make sure. Our, no, make it during the time. So October 11th, I will be giving a talk on, it's called uh, The Truth is Out There and In Your Own Backyard. Oh, I love that name. Uh, uh, we're going to do the history of... Uh, the uh, anomalous uh, phenomenon here. Uh, here, and um, well, you got to tell me where that is because I'm. And we're know. not only so, and then we're also going to leave time for everybody to share their stories. Excellent. And then we have actual footage that all of it was taken in Sonora. Oh, I want to see it. Um, of uh, well, UFOs. right right now the 
it's looking like October, I think, 16th. Okay, well, uh, maybe they'll come down a little early and yeah. c- catch my show. They should come down early anyway. <laughs> but yeah, definitely come to come to the Bigfoot Fest on on uh, the 25th, 26th, 27th. Next weekend. Yeah, right? next weekend. Find us. My birthday's on the 26th, so I'll be there for my birthday. But right. find us on the 27th. I'll have my, my Bigfoot Tiki shirt on. Okay. I'm not sure if it's Bigfoot and Alien Tiki or Bigfoot and Surf Tiki. I haven't decided yet. All right. But it's going to be one or the you other. Got it, uh, you, I'll got probably, quite, you got quite the wardrobe. Huh? I will probably be the only person there with a Bigfoot Tiki shirt. Uh, just to let you know, I've never actually seen Captain Tiki walk in with a captain's hat on. That's true. I'm still actually, I'm still looking for a captain's hat. Actually, I got one. You got one? Yeah. Okay. Let's see if I can dig it up. Dig it up. We'll trade. Uh, I'll trade it, you for And it would actually work underneath your uh, headphones. <laughs> it would. Well, and and I'll, I'll, I'll trade just you for just don't start calling me Lovey. I'm not going to call you. Or lovey. Gilligan. No, I'm not going to call. And I'm not the. I'm not the skipper, man. I'm losing. No, not the skipper. Uh, Thurston Howell. Thur- I know. Oh no, I know who Lovey Wouldn't is. Yeah. I always want to be the professor. Oh, the professor. And yeah. Let me Mary make it. Yeah. Let me make a shortwave radio out of a out of a coconut. Oh yeah. All right. Okay. Now it's time. Okay. Now it's time for me to blow your mind. <clears throat> Now, there is a story. There is very little evidence, but there is a story that's very rare. You will probably never hear it again unless you read my article from Paranoia. So back in the day, there was a guy by the name of Marconi. And Marconi built the tele- he invented the telegraph. Okay. During World War II, Marconi was kind of, had the heavy fist of Mussolini. And Mussolini kept pushing him to build more sophisticated technology, including radio equipment, radio direction finder, you know, things that Italians could use to win the war. And Marconi wasn't really bought into the program. He became less and less interested in dealing with it. And uh, Mussolini was threatening him more and more. Well, he actually stole the technology from Tesla, didn't he? Oh, okay. So I don't want to. He spoiler didn't. Spoiler alert. Yeah, he didn't steal it. <laughs> they worked it out. It so was a gestalt. There was a gestalt of now. of advanced technology floating around. So <clears throat> Marconi talks to Tesla, I guess, and they decide they need to make a run for it. So they start preparing. And shipping things. And so one day, Marconi, basically Mussolini threatened him. Marconi's like, I got to leave. So Marconi fills up, he had this yacht, right? I forget the name of it. But he fills it up with all this, his most advanced technology and stuff that he had stolen or gotten from Tesla. Loads it full of his technicians, the people he worked with, and they vanish. They disappear, right? And so they sail from Italy through the Mediterranean Ocean or the Mediterranean you know, Sea across the Atlantic down into S- South America. And they pay a whole bunch of porters and people to drag all this stuff up into the Andes. And they built a, not a huge but a good-sized city 
buried in the Andes somewhere that's based completely on Tesla tech and Marconi technology. Free energy, wireless transmission of electricity, the whole thing. And so there's a lot of UFOs that are sighted in South America. In fact, years ago, I think it was in Peru, there was a village at the base of the Andes and they supposedly were communicating via shortwave with a UFO. They called themselves a friendship. And I actually had a friend who took one of the recordings and took it to a linguist who specialized in Spanish. And she said that the, I heard the interview, and she said that the, the Spanish that was used was perfect, absolutely perfect, but it had no accent. It was like perfect textbook Spanish, perfectly pronounced, perfectly articulated, with no accent. Now, the, the, the theory is, is that there's this hidden city buried in the Andes of Tesla technology and survivors of, tech, of scientists that work with Tesla and Marconi that still exist to this day. And a lot of the UFOs that they see in South America actually come from that city. Oh, it is a hotbed. Yeah, oh, it's, it's of, a massive uh, hotbed, yeah. Uh, UFO. Although, over there in Peru... Uh, those little freak museums are real popular too. <laughs> that's no, true. No, they are. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you a good one. So, since that didn't that didn't blow your mind. No, enough. that did blow my mind. The problem with that story, though, is that there's not a lot to go on because it's about everything vanishing. Because there's there's a large amount of Tesla technology that that vanished that yeah. vanished before the government raided his. Yeah. They yeah. had there was. Uh, when they stepped in, there was unaccounted for boxes. And then, of course, when they left... There was more unaccounted for boxes. (laughs) That's right. Somebody had went through them uh, first. Yeah. And uh, when they were finally turned over to the National Museum, where was he from? Oh, I think he was from Hungary. Uh, And um, they turned over the papers to... Well, there's a... He's a national hero there. I mean, there's a Tesla museum there. I mean, they put him on, like, money and stuff. Wasn't there, he built an antenna over by Livermore somewhere? Do you know anything about that? I don't know about an antenna by Livermore. I know the one that's that's near Montauk, Uh, which is its whole, Montauk's a whole other Philadelphia experiment weirdness. When I was a kid, it was called Tesla, and there was a little thing saying that it was of historical significance. Really? But we used it In Livermore? In Livermore. But we used it as a... uh, you know those little mini bikes? Yeah. Because it was kind of up and downhill. <laughs> yeah. What is it with you with these like crazy places? And you're like, yeah, dude, there was a, a hidden te- Tesla antenna here. And I rode mini bikes around it like when I was a feral child. <laughs> what is it with you? It was like Forrest Gump. You just happened, <laughs> you happened to, to be, be in there. the right place. There was something else I was going to tell you too that was another mind bender. Oh, okay. So you were talking about the the lost civilization of Table Mountain. Yeah. Yeah. So not far from where the Tesla the Tesla Marconi Cloud City exists is a place called the Altiplano and it's a high altitude desert. It's one of the highest deserts in the world. Yeah, that's where they learned to freeze dry foods. 
That I did not know. Yeah, they would freeze dry their potatoes, and then later on they freeze dry as ice maidens. Yes, to freeze the daw uh, gods when their calendars went off because the movements of the star. Yes. Well, there it's also the home of of Tiwanaku, which is a very strange place. It actually has this depression where you walk down into it, and it has faces. And back in the '70s, there was a there was a film made by Alan Landsberg called The Outer Space Connection, which was narrated by Rod Serling. And it was their contention that Tiwanaku was a, a base for aliens. And so you keep hearing Rod Serling in your head going, Tiwanaku, Earth Base One. But across the street from Tiwanaku... They had the Rod Serling doll. You just, uh, <laughs> you just pull it. Tiwanaku, Earth Base One. It's actually a really... It was shot in 35 millimeter in 17 countries. I mean, it's a crazy good documentary. Wow. Yeah, it really is good. But across the street is a place called Pumapunku. Pumapunku is even older than Tiwanaku. And the, the thing about Tiwanaku is it has this thing called the Gateway of the Sun. And it's a, it's that archetypal, you know, like Incan-looking thing. It's carved out of a solid rock, and it's this huge gate. It's called the Gate of the Sun. They oh, still yeah. no, I've, laser I've precision. That. Yeah. yeah, that's Tiwanaku. Cross, I mean, not in person. No, but. it's it's my dream. I will go there before I die. Although I will tell you, I went and explored the kivas of the Southwest. You were telling me about yeah. that, and uh, it was with a uh, all these history professors and stuff. We had an Indian guide and everything. That must have been amazing. So we got to go into places where uh, you don't normally go. Right, allowed to go. Well, across the street is a place called Pumapunku. Pumapunku is even older than Tiwanaku. But that's not what makes... Pumapunku is very mysterious, too. They can't figure out who built Tiwanaku or Pumapunku. Okay? But that's not the mind bender. So apparently, at Pumapunku, right, they found something they call the Magna Bowl. Okay? So you're in the middle of, like, Bolivia, right in this high altitude desert oh, i thought it was a sporting event no high altitude desert in a in a in a basically a lost city right and they find this thing called the magna bowl what the magna and there was a statue that goes with the magna bowl the magna bowl is completely covered in cuneiform and the statue is to ishtar from the from the middle east right. And it's dated correctly. And it was actually a bowl used for the veneration. I won't get into what it was used for because it's, you know. But the the bowl itself and the, the statue were used in the veneration of Ishtar. It was part of an Ishtar cult. An Ishtar cult at Pumapunku in the middle of the Altiplano in Bolivia. So how does, the, how does an Ishtar bowl and statue go from you know, go from the Middle East to Bolivia. It's one of life's little mysteries. That is one of life's little mysteries. <laughs> that blows my mind. Yes. Yeah, so, so uh, did you eat any cooey when you were over there? No. Hamster or guinea pig? I've never been there. Oh. I want to go there, but... But guinea pig is not, I know it's a delicacy there, but it's not high on my list. Yeah. No, they actually, uh, no, they were like genius culture. 
Oh yeah, well, and, that... and it was in uh, the colonialist gold glory and God conquistadores came in and it spread smallpox and destroyed, killed them all, the whole thing. And they were an advanced civilization. Oh, insanely. And um, uh, you know their uh, their kipu, their writing, yes. and so the well, it's not writing, it's knots, oh. right? Right. And they'd have these series of. Um, Oh, they told entire stories. Yeah, from from creation. As a matter of fact, I have a translation that this guy, father, somebody, somebody. So he was half and half. He was half concrete. Oh, that's a good character to do. What? Uh, man, why can't I for, uh, know his name right now? But uh, so this guy, he's the son of Conquistadora, uh, and a uh, like a Mayan queen. Oh wow! All right. And he entered the order, and he was like heads and above. He was like the most brilliant guy, but he knew how to talk in Quechua and sure. Spanish and all the different languages. Yeah. And but he also could read Kipu, uh, and not very many people could. No. So he translated these classic poems. Yeah, they, they were poems. And, they told uh, stories through poetry. Um, yeah. So most of the uh, Average Joe on the street, they only use Kipu to uh, mark dates and stuff. It's like yeah, knotted, uh, I have this many cows. Right. You know, and here's the knots to prove it. But the upper classes, the ones. Yeah, they told stories. Uh, they wrote this beautiful poetry, and it all had to do with the arrangement of the knots, the color, and the yeah. kind of fabric it was. Oh, yeah. And uh, they actually had, yeah, these like Kipu scribes. Yeah. that the Inca family would uh, have. And this guy had translated some of that poetry. And what happened to him is that they branded him a heretic. Of course. Because they were destroying the culture. Right. And what uh, he did was try to save his gotten cahoots. He did. He got in cahoots with the local populace. Right. And they were trying to smuggle stuff and take it up there to the, what you call it, the anti-plateau. Oh, the Altiplano. Yeah, way up there. And hide that it. These, yeah, and hide it. And yeah. they got caught. Okay? Yeah. So he got sent back to Spain or he got sent to... He got thrown in prison. No, but while he was in prison, he wrote the, the, all of what we know about the ancient Inca people um, is contained in his books. And um, because he tried to save the culture. You know, there there's another guy like that. He was actually, <clears throat> his name is Alvaro Nunez Cabeza de Vaca. Oh, yeah, the gasser. Yeah, he he, uh, he was the treasurer on the Narvez expedition. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is it is actually the source of a lot of the wild horses in North America. Yeah, him and Esteban, they stomped all over the Southwest and yeah. everywhere. And so... Yeah, so, the Moor. Yeah. He was uh, one of the survivors. Yeah, he was one of the survivors. And so the, yeah. the boats go down, the the horses, they, they were carrying like a thousand horses or something crazy. And they swam ashore. And that's where the wild horses of North America come from. Well, the Cabeza de Vaca, he washes up on shore. And he's captured by the local native people. And they, you know, they just treated him horribly. Yeah, but he eventually became, became one of them. Uh, a, and shaman. A, great, a shaman, a great, a great shaman, yeah. Oh. And so one day, he sees evidence that the conquistadors are coming, and he tells them, he's like, "You have to run." And they're like, "No, we'll fight." And he's like, "You can't fight them. 
Yeah. And then he went to the conquistadors and he's like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, Cabeza de Vaca. I'm, I'm the treasurer from Narvez. I survived. You don't want to come here. There's nothing here. And he, he actually, he stopped them from taking over the area for quite some time. But no, yeah, he eventually became a great, a great shaman. The healer. Yeah. Uh, I did the petition. But, you know, oh, there's, my. there's a lot of, there's a lot of crazy stories when it comes to. He wasn't really a warrior, though. When no. he joined the expedition, what he was, was he? He was a treasurer. The, the, an accountant. He right? was basically, yeah, yeah a gold yeah, accountant. Right. A treasure accountant. Yeah. yeah. But uh, he went with the expert. So he was probably one of the more educated. In- oh, he was very well educated. Yeah. yeah. Like and he learned, you know, obviously he learned the language. And yeah. Yeah, I he, think eventually he went back to Spain. Well, but. he was, yeah, because he was responsible for the whole mapping of that area. Yeah. And then Esteban, I think that was his name, the Moor. The Moor. Um, went back again. And uh, first they hailed him as like a god, a black, a black man. Wow. Yeah. You know. And, um, but on a subsequent, he was looking for the golden cities. Yeah. And he said he had glimpsed them. But if you've ever been down there, there's this one, it's called the White House, and it still has its original plaster on it. Right. And it shines in the sun. Oh, yeah. I mean, it shines. I think that's what he was looking for. But on, I don't know what expedition he was on, but uh, he was killed by them. No, I have no doubt. Yeah. But yeah, no the the gold the golden was it the seven cities of gold. Yeah. yeah, they were always looking for that, and and obviously the fountain of youth that was. Well, that's funny because I had written a story about um, uh, what was one of my Ace of the Airwaves. Oh yeah, series. I, I played the thing. <laughs> yeah, I had a whole little radio series, and uh, the this advanced indigenous civilization in the Southwest and they lived all underground, but they lived like on a ley line and took advantage of the electromagnetic uh, uh, makeup of uh, mm-hmm. the way the earth, to be able to levitate things and stuff. So they well, had that's... elevators that go up and down. Oh, yeah. and no they lived in it. But then all of a sudden, the earth's magnetic field shifted. Oh, that's the end of that. And these people are stuck down in this underworld until of course, Ace Donovan and uh, the reporter uh, Peggy Bannon happened upon this lost civilization. We need to do the Schaefer <laughs> Mysteries. We really do. Panther Meadow, the Schaefer Mysteries. So we what are the Schaefer Mysteries? Give us a teaser. Well, there was this guy, Schaefer, and, and back in the day, he wrote for Amazing Stories, I think it was, oh, okay. or one of them, Fantastic Stories, and he wrote about a lost civilization under Mount Shasta. And the interesting thing is that it it actually ties into a Yurok legend of these people called the Wage. But he, he believed that there were the, the Darrows and the they lived under Mount Shasta. And that on occasion, you could see them coming out of the mountain. There are stories that back, you know, in the 1800s. But only if you're like chosen. I've no, 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 no. out a different vibe. No, no. no there, there, anybody, are stories, huh? there are stories going back to the, to the turn of, the, oh, okay. of the, the 20th century where... Yeah, Even, guy went through one of them lava tubes and found the city. Is that well? That's Guy Ballard. Okay, yeah. that's another the I am cult. Uh, but yeah, I mean they. Um, but it's a spiritual center. Yeah, it is. Isn't and, Edgar Casey said that reincarnated souls waited up in Mount Shasta yeah. to come down? Yeah, and it was the survivors of of Lemuria. Yeah. Uh, but the Wage—that's actually very interesting. 
we don't have enough time to talk about the walking. No, and but uh, that's it's. Yeah, Table Mountain here in Tuolumne County is not as glamorous, but we actually have receipts. You know. Yeah, like, that's the difference. You know, uh, a lot of Schaefer. The one thing that Schaefer did though that was interesting is that he eventually came up with this idea of the, of rock books, and he claimed that he had books <laughs> written in rock, where when you shine them up to the light, they actually showed like a book. And, I, and my friend Alan, Alan Greenfield, uh, he actually had some of the rock books at the time. But, you know, for those of you who watch Hellier, um, he, he gave them to um, uh, Terry Rist, this guy Terry Rist. And Terry Rist kept them and stole them and when Terry Rist took off. So are there any surviving? Rock books? Yeah. Not that I'm aware of. Oh. Well, I remember one time going up to the... Uh, Shriners Hospital. I was, uh, you know, it's like a children's hospital, and some of those kids are in there for like years, literally right. years. And uh, you go into the lobby, and they have the Book of Gold. It's okay. a book. All the cover, the all the pages are made of gold. Okay. And uh, you have to donate so much money to get inscribed in the Book of Gold. That's crazy. Uh, but it's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, an entire book of gold. Yeah, and big, like, you know, big, like the, like a Bible that would be sitting on a uh, like, yeah, minister's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, big monster. That's crazy. But, oh, hey, you know what? I heard one other thing. So I was in Yosemite. I heard one other story that you will find very interesting. So are you familiar... Local tale. Are you, local tale. Are you familiar with the Fresno uh, Nightcrawler? Don't they glow in the dark or something? Yeah. yeah. They're like legs that walk around. Oh, no. I No, I guess not. I, we used to dig for something and they would glow in the dark. No, no, no. This that isn't this isn't a this isn't a worm. Oh, okay. What what is it? It's a cryptid that okay. looks like a pair of pants that's walking around. That looks like a pair of pants. It looks like a pair around. of pants. All right. No, I think I saw didn't they capture or, something Fresno on a Night video? Stalker. Fresno Night Stalker. Yes. Yeah, I did see that. Uh, some cam or something. Well, check this out. Apparently, they come from Yosemite. No, they. It was very bizarre. I didn't. They see I them. I can see why it would look like a walking pair of pants. But yeah, they see them. Apparently, they get seen fair, quite often inside Yosemite, and the stories go back a long ways. So I'm doing research, but apparently, the Fresno Night Night Stalker. They come from Yosemite originally. Right. Better known as the Pant Man. The Pant Cryptid. No, they don't. I guess they look could. like a pair of pants. Yeah. No, I actually seen something caught on a cam. Yeah, I know. And there's uh, a very famous video. you said pants, I I go oh, okay, but they do look. to me, they look like the roller guys uh, from the Oz books. <laughs> yes. You know, with because uh, they. No, they, it literally looks like a pair of pants walking around. Okay, well, I, I don't know. I don't know. I know uh, reading the legends uh, that Tom Williams, uh, indigenous guy from the 1800s, uh, there was the rolling head of the Table Mountain Pass there by Pulpit. Oh, you were telling me about this. Uh, so that'd be a good story. I'll yeah, we should do that one too. And everybody kind of believe, believed that story. Well, I have no you told or me you this, right? You didn't go through the pass without a buddy. And if it got too late, you got nervous. So it's yeah. kind of like the headless horseman. 
But instead of the horseman looking for the head, it's the head looking for the body. Yeah. Just, yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting dynamic. <laughs> the head looking. You know, it takes me back. It's that story I always tell you when I talk to Richard Allen Miller. I said, <laughs> Dr. Richard Allen, I got to, is he still alive? I got to talk to him. If he's still alive, I got to get him on. So I asked this guy. He's very famous. He's wrote a bunch of books about like, you know, aphrodisiacs and growing, you know, all kinds of herbs and herb magic and all kinds of stuff. Well, so I go to Richard Allen Miller. I said, hey, I'm interviewing him on a podcast. And I said, hey, what's the strangest thing you've ever seen in your life? Because I figure it's got to be pretty weird to like freak him out. He goes, okay, I got a story. And I'm like, shoot. He says, okay, one day, I'm sitting in my office and I get a phone call and they're like, cause remember he's a troubleshooter. He fixes weird problems. Okay. So they call and he's got a couple PhDs. So they call him up and they say, Richard, we need you in Florida now. And so when the government calls you and says, Richard, we need you in the, in Florida, you go. They called on the phone. Right? They called on the phone. Okay. Not on the secure phone, on the normal phone. No, bat phone. No. no I thought maybe they it was. It was like a big. No, it was like a big red Bakelite phone. You know, it's what you anticipate being called on to launch the nuclear the war. Bat heads. phone. Yeah. No, I was thinking more as in remote viewing. Oh no no no! But he did do that actually. He told me a story where him and Edgar Mitchell did that. He was in Houston and Edgar Mitchell was on the moon. And he did he did ESP experiments and remote viewing experiments did with I Edgar Mitchell. From you, I yes. have heard that story. Yes, you heard it from me. So anyway, so they go, Richard Allen Miller, Florida now. So he goes, okay. So he goes out there. So they pick him up at the airport and they take him out into the Everglades. It's a big swamp. And they there's a bunch of guys. They've sealed off the area. Big government operation, right? And in the middle of all of it, there's a head, a woman's head in the middle of the Everglades. Now, that's not that uncommon, right? Because they murder people and take them out to the Everglades, dump the bodies. They do a lot of drug trafficking through the Everglades. You see Miami Vice, man. You know the deal, right? I was thinking a crocodile kind of just spit out the head. It could be a crocodile spitting out the head. Fell Fell off a fan boat, whatever. I'm like, okay, you got to do better than that. Come on. He's like, no, 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 no. The head's not the weird part. I'm like, okay. He goes, the woman that owned the head was still alive. And I'm like, okay, well, was her head still attached? He goes, yes. Her head was still attached. She died three hours later in a completely unrelated unrelated circumstance. I'm like, okay, so you find her head in the Everglades, but she's still alive 200 miles away with her head attached. He's like, yes. And I'm like, okay, how does that work? Was, was she decapitated three hours later? No. All right, well. She got I, hit by a car or something. Uh, yeah, I knew uh, somebody that uh, participated in those. I don't know if you remember Ipana tooth uh, commercials. Oh, yeah. And they had the, the shiny test that yeah. what would promote perfect teeth. And they had the challenge. Yeah. Well, I knew a guy that brushed for Ipana for a month. <laughs> and all his teeth fell out. And he was hit by a truck. Thanks. <laughs> so I tell him, I say, Richard, how does that work? And he goes, I don't bleep a no. And I'm like, 
Okay. No, he couldn't even speculate. I mean, he had just been telling for two hours. He had been telling me all this crazy stuff about growing, you know, weed and in moon dust and regolith and moon dust and ESP experiments and time loops and all this craziness. And he gets to this woman. They find her head in the Everglades, but she's still alive, two hundred miles away, with her head attached. And he's he's like, it's one of life's little mysteries. One of life's little mysteries. All right. Well, with with that, I think we're going to cruise on out of here. So you've been listening to another fantastically amazing uh, episode of the Enigma Hour, which is two hours, by the way, uh, with Captain Tiki, aka Miola Phillips, co co host with Dave. Dave. Dave Allen here. Uh, make sure you have your dial tuned for next week. Same uh, station, same uh, time. Same time. <laughs> yeah, we broadcast every week. Uh, me and Dave down here in the in the bunker uh, every Thursday, 10 p.m. to midnight, and uh, we do it live on kaad-lp.org. You can listen on the internet. We also podcast it uh, wherever better podcasts are found. And uh, I don't know, man. Thanks for listening. Oh, and don't forget to go to go to Bigfoot Fest. And speaking of Bigfoot Fest, Dave, here you go. The third annual Sierra Bigfoot Music and Art Festival, August 25th through the 27th. 24 bands in three days. Bands such as Ira Walker. Don't you be playing, cause I'll be The Neighborhood Sound. North Fork. Keith Burroughs Band. And many, many more. On Sunday, there's a Bigfoot Symposium with researchers from all around the country from 11 till 2 Sunday. 50 vendors, 24 bands. Downtown Twainheart. The third annual Sierra Bigfoot Music and Art Festival. August 25th through the 27th. Epperson Park, downtown Twainheart. You might, you might even catch a glimpse of Sasquatch. He's been seen there before. <laughs> <laughs>